popular causes in our society today is a uh, push by consumer groups for truth in labeling. You know, cigarette packs have to carry the Surgeon General's warning. Uh, Garment bags or those uh, dry cleaning bags have to warn children away. Uh, A while back, I was listening to a comedian who had some very good questions about some of uh, these labels. He was noticing that on a shampoo bottle, it says, do not drink. Now, what makes you think if the guy is stupid enough to drink shampoo, he's going to read the label anyway? (laughs) Have you ever uh, seen on the back of those sunscreens you stick in your windshield when you park the car? It actually says in big red letters, do not drive with shade in windshield. (laughs) Remove shade before driving. Has this been a big problem in our society? People driving down the freeway with that shade still in place? Uh, Regardless of these uh, absurdities, these new labeling rules are valuable. They're good. We want to know what we're getting. We want to be able to see the ingredients in the food we buy. And when something says uh, genuine Florida orange juice, we want those oranges to be from Florida. That's good. And maybe it's time we in the church started a little truth in advertising. You know, uh, it's so easy to tell people that if you will only trust Jesus... Everything in your life will go well. You'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. And some preachers will even tell you, if you only believe, it can be yours. Name it and claim it, that car, that house. Most of us are a little more uh, subtle, a little less crass. We focus on internal things, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And I've told you before, if you trust God, you will have peace. And I still believe that, but for honesty's sake, let me qualify that. If you trust God, you will have peace eventually. <laughs> you know, a, a walk with God is no way to avoid some of life's deeper pain. Things still overwhelm us. Sickness in the family, financial strain and collapse... Alienation in our marriages and in our friendships, our relationship, these are part of the Christian experience. And a relationship with God is not a way to insulate ourselves from these things, though He's there to walk through them with us. But bottom line, a relationship with God is not a way to avoid pain and suffering. So if you bought into Uh, your relationship with God because somebody told you that God was a nice little accessory that would make all the other things in your life work better? Or if a relationship with God was, was supposed to smooth all the bumps out in your life, I'm sorry. I apologize. You've been lied to. In fact, in 1 Peter, we are told that we were called to this very purpose, that we might suffer. We were actually called to suffer. Now, before everybody heads for the back door... Let me uh, say what I'd like to do this morning is to take a look at that call, what we're really called to. And I want to do that by looking at the call of Jeremiah. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah 1. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at a couple of patriarchs, we've looked at a couple of kings, and now we're going to look at a couple of prophets, starting with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, is 52 long chapters. So we're not going to get into much detail other than within the first chapter. So look with me, chapter 1 of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, 
in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now this gives us a brief background on the history around Jeremiah. Let me go into a little bit more detail. Let me expand a little bit. On your timelines, we've gone well past the time of King David at 1000 BC. We're closing in on the return of the exiles at 500 BC. In fact, the call of Jeremiah is right about 626 BC, about 17, 18 years after the death of Manasseh, who we looked at last week, the wicked king who repented. In fact, the king who is in power when Jeremiah receives his call, this guy Josiah, is the grandson of Manasseh. About five years earlier, in the eighth year of the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah's father by the name of Hilkiah, who was the high priest at the time, was rummaging around in one of the storerooms of the temple, and he comes across this old scroll. He dusts it off, opens it up, and starts to read it. And he's amazed, because he realizes that what he has found is one of the writings of Moses that had been lost for hundreds of years. He had a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, and they didn't even know it existed. And as he read, he became overwhelmed, and he quickly took it to Josiah and gave it to the king. And the king started to read it, and he was overwhelmed. See, at this point in the history of Judah, it had been so long since anybody paid any attention to what the Scriptures said. They thought it was just these ancient writings that applied to people a thousand years ago when Moses wrote them. But as he read God's Word, he realized that it spoke directly to him in his day thousand years later. And as we read God's Word, we realize it speaks directly to us in our day, 2,500 years after that. You see, God's Word will still have a profound impact today if the people in our culture would read it again for the first time. Anyway, as Jeremiah's father, Hilkiah, and King Josiah begin to study the Scriptures and obey it, they sparked a great revival in Judah, calling people back to the covenant. And it was in the midst of this revival, while it was in full swing, that Jeremiah gets his call to ministry. I'm going to come back later to the rest of the details in in, in verse 3. But for now, I'd like to just look at that call. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. God tells Jeremiah that he loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. In fact, that plan started well before Jeremiah was even born. Jeremiah is not a happy accident. His, his life is no afterthought. This is very similar to the verses that Bill read from Psalm 139. I won't read them again. But there we're told again that God knew us before we were born. He knew every detail. In fact, He had plans for us. Verse 16, He said, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts of me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. There are so many thoughts that God has had of you. You see, the fact is, this stuff applies to you. As well, God thought of you. 
and thought things through before you were even conceived. He planned the time and the circumstances of your birth, the family, the parents he would give you to, the body that he would give you. And out of the billions of people ever born, there are no duplicates. My wife, Becky, and her sister, Ginger, are identical twins. And even though they look alike, and even though both are neat people in their own right, they are in no way copies of each other. Each of us is an original. And at this point in Jeremiah's life, it was important for him to understand this individually and personally. It's important for you to understand this individually and personally that God thought of you and that His thoughts were without number. There's so many of them in such detail. He made plans for the, 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 your appearance and your stature, for the family He would place you in and the role and the ministry you would have in that family and in the job that He would place you in, the neighborhood, in the relationships that He would put you in. He has plans for how He would use you. Again, the thoughts of God are beyond number for you specifically, individually. And no one else can be you. No one else can be in all of those relationships and situations that he plans to use you in. You are irreplaceable and unique. And this fact is both a great affirmation. You're not an extra. Your life is not happenstance. But it's also a great responsibility. God wants to accomplish things through you that he can't accomplish through anyone else. God wants to use you in a unique way to accomplish His plans. You see, and that's what you are called to. I'd like to read again these verses to Jeremiah. This time, close your eyes and listen to them as God's Word to you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I know I've just wasted my breath on many of you, that you're too skeptical to believe what I've just said is true of you. Sure, it may be true of others, but not of you. Well, that's exactly what Jeremiah thought. Look at verse 6. He says, Oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. See, he acknowledges God's sovereignty in theory and in general, but... In specific, in in real life, when it applies to him, no. God, I'm too dumb for you. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm only a child. You see, we don't expect much of a child. He's saying, don't expect so much out of me, God. I'm not adequate. When Jeremiah wrote these, he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. You know, hardly a child. But he doesn't want to grow up. I can identify. You know, last Monday was my birthday. And I... uh, always enjoy when another year has gone by because I'm that much closer, another year closer to our Lord's return. I get excited about that. But I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And and I get really nervous about expectations. If somebody asks me my age, I usually tell them, well, I'm very young and full of potential. (laughs) Because I don't want them to expect too much out of me. And I, you know, I feel like Jeremiah took the words out of my mouth. And I think for any of us, when we suddenly face the fact that God wants to do great, thring, great things through you individually, and we feel inadequate. We say, no, God, you can't be talking to me. See, that's how 
Everyone that God has ever called has felt. That's how Moses felt. That's how Joshua felt. That's how Gideon and Isaiah felt. Every man and woman that God has called to do great things has felt absolutely inadequate. Because they were. Because we are. But God is adequate. And His adequacy is more than enough. God can do great things through us. That's what uh, Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians. In such confidence we have regarding God, not that we are adequate in ourselves, that any of this comes from us, but our adequacy comes from God, who made us adequate as ministers of the new covenant. You see, Paul is confident that God is smart enough and powerful enough to use even him. This isn't vanity. In fact, it's a perverse form of vanity when we think we're too much for God. We focus too much in ourselves when we don't believe that God can use even us. God is that good. That's why he tells Jeremiah, verse 7 and 8, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. See, what God says to Jeremiah is exactly what God said to Moses in Exodus 3. I will be with you. Joshua, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For I, the Lord your God, will be with you wherever you go. And Gideon in Judges 6.16. I will be with you. And that's exactly what he says to Jeremiah. And that's exactly what he says to you. He says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. He says, don't worry about your voice. Don't worry about your intelligence, your appearance, your talents and abilities. I will be with you, and I'll be everything you need. I will be your voice. I will give you the words to say. I'll be your strength, and your wisdom, and your comfort, and your courage. Whatever demand is made on you, I will be there to meet it. You see, and this is the most important point I will make this morning. Ultimately, what we are called to is not a job, it's not a ministry, it's not a place, it's not a family, it's not an encounter or a conversation. Ultimately, it is not what we are called to, it is whom we are called to. And we are called to God. To walk with God, to listen to Him, to learn from Him, to, to begin to see Him as He is, to experience His fellowship and His faithfulness. And in that process, He will accomplish His plan through us as we walk with Him. And this is critical. I've seen so many lives wasted. People who, who want to know God's plan. And they beg for a fax or a telegram. God, tell me your plan and I'll do it. And and when nothing comes, they despair of ever knowing God's will. And they, they put this whole business of a call back up on the theological shelf where it belongs. Or others who feel called to a specific ministry, a specific task, and they throw themselves into it, sacrificing everything they have, even their families, to accomplish this task, only to discover that ultimately they have accomplished nothing. Maybe even more harm than good. But when we realize that we are called to God, 
to walk with Him, to see Him, to be flooded with Him, then every task becomes an expression of that call. Everything we do, we begin to do out of love for Him, out of a desire to bring Him pleasure, out of a conviction that this thing that we do is exactly what He wants us to do. And this thing we do can be just about anything, from washing the dishes to moving to China, putting the book down to kiss your daughter, making a a hard phone call to be reconciled with that sister who, who there's some tension with, refusing sin, that temptation to sin, writing a note to somebody who is ill, confronting a brother about their sin, giving sacrificially to missions, uh, greeting, welcoming a visitor among us. See, everything, all of these things become an expression, a manifestation of our call, of our relationship with God, because it is to Him that we are called, to walk with Him, to love Him, to know Him. But what God does next with Jeremiah is very interesting and telling, but I want to move pretty quick from here on through the rest of the chapter. Verse 9, he says, Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth. And He said to me, Now I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. God tells Jeremiah two things. First of all, he reaches out and he touches Jeremiah's mouth and he says, Now I've placed my word in your mouth. Then he says, And I've given you the power to wipe out nations, to overthrow governments, and then also to build new things, great constructive projects. You know, what is this power that Jeremiah has been given, that God gave Jeremiah? It sounds like some form of nuclear technology. You know, he can wipe out entire nations and he can do all kinds of sophisticated, good, wonderful things through it. But you see, the power that God gave to Jeremiah is far greater than nuclear technology. The power that God gave to Jeremiah is exactly what he said there in verse 9. Now I have put my words in your mouth. You've heard that the pen is mightier than the sword. So you have no idea of the magnitude of power when it comes to words. Even man's words have a profound impact. All of us were shaped and affected by the words of our parents and others around us as we were growing up, either building us up or tearing us down emotionally, psychologically. And on a larger scale, no war was ever begun apart from the word of a leader. The nuclear destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was released by a word from Truman. When I was in college, we studied the writings of Frederick Hegel. who's a German philosopher who articulated the dialectic process and applied it to uh, social evolution. It was directly from his demonic theories that both Nazi fascism and Marxist communism are derived. The two most destructive forces that this earth has seen so far. They both came from this man's Words, And as effective, as great an impact as words, as people's words have on us and on the course of history, compared to God's word, they're nothing. 
God, by His Word, created all that exists. He created the sun and the stars and the mountains and the oceans. And everything that is is sustained by His Word. He speaks and it comes to pass. The Word of God does not return to Him void. It accomplishes whatever He sends it out to accomplish. It is the most powerful force that exists. And this is what He says He gave to Jeremiah. He placed in Jeremiah's mouth. Now think about that. If God walked up to you and gave you the greatest power that exists by which you can blow up planets and heal the most horrible diseases, would you say, well, thanks, that's nice, and get on with your life? Or would you seek to understand how to use it, to use it for good, study and train how to apply it to the needs of people? See, as exaggerated as it may sound, That's exactly what God has done. He has given us the greatest power on earth. He's given us His Word. And our mission is to train, to learn how to use it, to apply it to the needs of people, to study, to learn how to administer it gently, lovingly, wisely, effectively. That's really what the rest of the book of Jeremiah is about, is Jeremiah learns to use the Word of God. Now, Jeremiah was in a slightly different position than we are. He received the Word of God directly. We've received it through him and through others that God has written the Scriptures through. But it's the exact same Word with the exact same purpose to be applied healing in people's lives. Well, what God does next is He gives Jeremiah a couple of practice exercises. First, he shows Jeremiah an almond branch. Now, I don't know how he showed it to it. Somehow he brought it before Jeremiah's eyes. And he says, what do you see? Jeremiah says, an almond branch. God said, exactly, that's what I showed you. See, all God calls you to share is what he shows you. Look at his word. What do you see? Well, exactly. Now, share that with whomever he gives you to share it with. Whether it's your own heart, whether it's a friend at work, whether it's with an Indian in South America. That's all we're called to do, is to share what He shows us. Then God uh, gives him another exercise. This time He shows him a boiling pot pouring down from the north. And He says, what do you see? Jeremiah says, well, a boiling pot pouring down from the north. God says, exactly. Only this time what it means is that the nation of Babylon, the Babylonians will come through and conquer the world. Now the Babylonians at this point weren't a power. The powers were Assyria and Egypt. But this is a message God wanted to give. So Jeremiah just repeated it. That's not a particularly pleasant message. Uh, People weren't excited about it. But at this time, it was a long ways off. And at the time Jeremiah was telling people this message, Judah was doing very well. They were in the midst of a revival. They were open to hearing God's word. So for Jeremiah, this prophet stuff seemed... Pretty easy. This is great stuff. All I have to do is God will show me something. I'll tell people about it. No problemo. It's great. But the rest of the story. The rest of Jeremiah's story is throughout the rest of the book of Jeremiah. It's not chronological, so I can't just march you through it. So let me, let me just tell you what happens. Josiah, the good king, is killed in battle against the Egyptians. The Egyptians were coming up to attack the Assyrians, and Josiah tried to stop them or slow them, and he's killed in battle. And as soon as Josiah is gone, the people return to the sins of Manasseh. 
One of uh, Josiah's son, a guy by the name of Jehoaz, becomes king, but he's only king for three months because the uh, Egyptian pharaoh, Necho, doesn't like him. And so he deposes him, sticks another one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, as king. Now in the meantime, Babylon is on the rise. They come and they invade Assyria, wipe them out, invade and conquer the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, plunder it. So the Egyptians come up to stop this new threat. And the uh, Egyptians meet the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And there the great uh, Babylonian general Nebuchadnezzar completely defeats Pharaoh Necho and becomes the undisputed power of the world. Well, Nebuchadnezzar wants to make sure that everybody who lived in these Egyptian territories knows that he's the boss now, so he comes down through Palestine. And on his way down, Jeremiah goes to Jehoiakim and says, listen, this is part of God's plan. Don't resist. Welcome him. Greet him. But to Jehoiakim and to the people, this sounds like treason. Give up without a fight? Never. And so they reject Jeremiah. They push him away and they resist. And Nebuchadnezzar just blows right through their resistance. And to punish Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar takes all of the nobles off into to slavery, into, into uh, Babylon. And this is where Daniel and all of his friends were taken as slaves. But he figures he's punished Jehoiakim enough, so he leaves him as the puppet king. About eight years later, Jehoiakim, some of the other kings around are saying, man, we don't like to be ruled by Babylon. They make a decision to revolt. And again, Jeremiah comes to him and says, no, listen to God's word. God says, submit to this leadership. Don't fight it. I know you don't like it, but God is telling you to learn some things, to put your attention back to walking with him. But again, they reject him. This time they beat him, throw him into a a pit, a a cistern full of mud, leave him there. Sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and puts down this revolt just as easily as the others. This time uh, gets rid of the king, places another man as king, another one of Josiah's sons, Zedekiah, becomes king. Unfortunately, Zedekiah proves to be just as wicked and stupid as the rest of them. uh, Jeremiah goes to him and says, Listen, now you have a chance to turn, to repent and experience God's blessing. Zedekiah wants nothing to do with it. He wants freedom. He wants independence. Jeremiah says, No, God said that it will be 70 years before the Babylonians leave. 70 years. Get used to it. Deal with it. In fact, Jeremiah writes a letter to the people in captivity and he tells them, it'll be 70 years before you return. So settle in, get jobs, get married, have families, become a blessing to the people around you. Start to live your lives in a way that they'll see that God is the true God. One of the the, uh, priests in exile gets a hold of Jeremiah's letter and he is furious. So he writes a protest back to the high priest in Jerusalem who has Jeremiah beaten again and thrown in a well this time. Sure enough, Zedekiah decides to make a treaty with the Egyptians who were starting to recover. They're going to throw off the Babylonian control. Jeremiah goes back to Zedekiah and says, Please don't do this. It is wrong. God has said explicitly, specifically, this is wrong. And again, Zedekiah and the people treat Jeremiah as a traitor. They blame him for their problems. They hate him for speaking the truth. And again, they throw him in prison. Well, by this time, Nebuchadnezzar's had enough of these Judean revolts. 
This time he comes through and he lays waste to the entire country. He invades Jerusalem and demolishes every building in Jerusalem, including the temple. He gets rid of Zedekiah and the nation of Judah has ceased to exist. Most of its inhabitants are dead. Those that aren't, there are a few hiding in the hills. The rest have been taken off as slaves. There is no more Judah. Last thing that Nebuchadnezzar did before he left is to set Jeremiah free, invited him to come back to Babylon with him. Jeremiah said, no, God has called me to stay and to minister to those who, who are hiding out, the refugees who are hiding out in the hills. That's what Jeremiah does. He stays, tries to minister to these people. Some of them sneak in and assassinate the uh, governor of Judea. Jeremiah says, stay, deal with it. God will protect you. And they say, no, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and there will be reprisals. And so they run to Egypt. Jeremiah says, don't go. They, they go. This time they drag Jeremiah with them to Egypt. And there in Egypt, they've had enough of this old guy. Always being an annoyance. Jeremiah's in his 70s. There in Egypt, they kill him. Now, Jeremiah never married. He had no children. The few friends that he did have were either killed or taken into captivity. His entire life for 40 years, no one ever listened to him. Sometimes somebody in another country might, or the people in exile occasionally listened to him. But whenever he spoke to somebody face to face, that person tried to smash his face. You see, Jeremiah was a very sensitive man. He hated to confront. He wept over and over. He said, God, no, not me. Send somebody else. I hate doing this. And God kept saying, go. And he had no choice. Over and over, he wept because of the foolishness of his, of his people. Uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because it broke his heart over and over as he would go to his people and they would ignore the truth and continue in their destructive ways knowing full well it was going to destroy them. Over and over he wept because of the hatred directed at him. When he would tell people the truth, they hated him for it. They would misinterpret his love as, as judgmentalism, as, as intolerance. They would accuse him of being hateful and, and bigoted. They would accuse him of being the problem in their society rather than being somebody who loved enough to try to pull them back. Over and over, Jeremiah wanted out. He tried to quit, but every time he quit, he said the word of God was like a fire in his bones and he couldn't keep it in. He loved people too much not to warn them. On a couple occasions, Jeremiah curses his mother and father for ever having given him birth. You know, so much... For the victorious Christian life. You now, where's the peace? Where's the joy? Chapter 9, verse 1. His eyes were fountains of tears. He wept day and night for the slain of his people. See, we see in Jeremiah, probably more than anybody else in Scripture, other than Jesus himself, that because Jeremiah was called to the truth in a society that hated the truth, Jeremiah was called to suffer. Such a deal. We'll take sign-ups in the back for those of you who want in on this deal. Actually, most of you have already signed up. Because you've thrown your lot in with God, chosen to follow Him, you will be hurt. But I want you to understand a couple of things about that. The reason we suffer is because we've been called to God and God calls us to love. The reason Jeremiah suffered was because he cared 
If he could have just stopped caring, he could have got on with his own life. The reason we suffer is because we're called to love. We're called to care. The way to protect yourself is to stop caring, to to curse people, to close your ears to the truth and try to go on with your life, to continue to pretend that sin doesn't kill, to join in the celebration of the damned. That's a meaningless life. You see, the fact is, because we've been called to God, because we've been loved by Him, we really don't have a choice. We have to love. And as we love, mourning over the choices that people we love make, choices that destroy them, choices that lead them away from God, as we love grieving and being hurt by their misinterpretation of our love, viewing us as hateful and intolerant and and, and bigoted, viewing us as the problem in society rather than people who care enough to speak the truth and, and to try to pull people away from destruction. As we love and hurt like this, we are indeed sharing in the sufferings of Christ because that's how He loves. And that's how He has called us to love. People, there is no other payoff. The thing that motivated Jeremiah, that, that, that enabled him to keep on loving, to keep on caring, was that as he walked with God, and, and, and he looked at God and listened to God and began to see God as he is. He began to realize that God loved these people more than he did. That his pain was just a taste of the ache in God's heart for these people. And as he saw this, as he encountered such tenderness, such, uh, such beauty, such purity of love in God's heart, he was helpless to resist. He couldn't help but fall in love with such a wonderful, loving God. He couldn't resist the love of his God. For Jeremiah, that was enough. That was plenty of reward to know God and to love him. And as Jeremiah kept walking with God, he began to yearn for that future with God when Jesus, whom Jeremiah calls the righteous king, would reign perfectly And all of God's people would be filled with the knowledge of Him. And sin and pain would be no more. This became the longing of Jeremiah's heart. Well, bottom line, truth, no false advertising. This is all we have to offer. You will have pain and heartache. There will be doubt and confusion. You may curse the day that you were born. Because you're called to walk with God, you will be hurt. But because you are called to Him, you will catch a glimpse of His glory, a vision of His beauty. And enraptured with His love, you will have His presence in your life from this moment for eternity. To know Him and to love Him. To experience who He is. See, if you, if you can grasp what I'm telling you, what God is offering, then you'll realize that this is enough. There won't be a moment's hesitation. To add anything else to the deal is superfluous. Let's pray.
Peter wrote, But to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit and the glory of God rests upon you. Isaiah 11, They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Lord, we have needs. We have wants and desires, and we tell you them because you're our Father and you care. And you want to know our heart. But Lord, ultimately, we want you. We want to see you and to know that love. To experience your love. To be so in love with you that nothing matters other than to be with you for eternity. Lord, just flood us with a vision of your goodness, of your purity of your tenderness and your love for the people around us. Break our hearts for them as your heart is broken. Fill us with your word that we might speak the truth to them in love. Teach us, train us to use your word lovingly, skillfully, effectively. Lord, again, we realize because we're called to the truth in a world that hates the truth, we will be hated and we will be hurt. And Lord, there's no point in that as far as we can see unless you're there, unless you walk through it with us. And so we desperately turn to you and ask that you call us to yourself. We will come, Lord. Amen.